Thank you for joining us today for our podcast series, Meet Us in the Middle, where we dive into deep conversations with some of the most interesting people across the heartland who are striving each day to use their ingenuity and creativity to impact the middle of the country. Come join us as we meet in the middle. There's more information being consumed about food and cooking than in the history of America and less people cooking than in the history of America. Oh, yeah, that's very true. Yes. So it, just, it, it was just this incredible opportunity from just a gap. Welcome to our podcast, Meet Us in the Middle. I am Blake Woolsey, the Chief Communications and Development Officer for Heartland Forward. And today we have Matt Wadiak. Um, he is the founder and CEO of Cook's Venture, and we are so thrilled to have him. I told him I felt like I needed to get an autograph because I've been following his story for so long. And then to think that he is uh, working in Decatur, Arkansas, I couldn't be more happy to have him um, for an interview today. So welcome, Matt. Thank you, Blake. Really great to be here. Um, so as I mentioned, he's founder and CEO, but prior to Cook's Venture, he founded and served as the COO of Blue Apron, which I think many of us um, have been a part of. That's the trailblazing meal kit company that really reimagined the way food is produced and distributed and prepared for home chefs. Um, his goal, according to what his bio shares, is nothing short of building a food system for the future, changing industrial agriculture and creating a regenerative system, reducing climate change while providing consumers with food choices that are exceptional in quality and taste. Um, and then you also take your time to serve uh, uh, on the board of Goodwill International, which is one of the largest NGOs in the world um, to, that helps to educate and develop better employment around the country through diversity of workforce development and social programs. So a very, very impressive bio um, that you have. So let's go ahead and let's get started, Matt, because when I read your bio and as I have followed you, food has really been a focus in your career. When did you know that this was going to be really what you were going to be doing um, as an adult in your career? You know, it, it's interesting. I, I um, was one of those uh, kids who was a, a, an athlete in high school, and then I had a part-time job working in a restaurant and started cooking and ended up going to college. And I was cooking in college to help pay tuition. Um, so I had a job working in a restaurant and for campus food services. And then um, said, you know, I'm, I'm spending all my time cooking anyway. I should really go to culinary school. And I ended up going to culinary school and then uh, started traveling and working in, in great restaurants in different parts of the world. Eventually ended up in California um, via Chicago uh, and worked at a couple of great restaurants in, in different parts of the country. And just said, hey, this is what I'm doing. You know, this is this is official now. And one of the things that I, I realized early in my career is that, you know, in different parts of the world, food systems vary so vastly and that accessibility to great food doesn't have to be something that is only an elitist mentality. So I feel like when I was growing up around food and cooking, the quality of ingredients that we had in kitchens were really just for like Michelin star chefs and um, really senior high level chefs. And um, when I would go and work in, in Italy and France and different parts of the world, you know, folks were eating that all, you know, as their family dinner 
taxpayers at all income levels and coming back to the States and, you know, working for $10 an hour as a line cook, um, you know, with produce and ingredients and meats that um, you couldn't even afford to eat working in the restaurant. Right. <laughs> really eye-opening. So it, it was always a, it, it, for me, an important mission, you know, starting out, you know, cooking when I was 16 to say, how do we create more accessibility to the kinds of foods people are eating in different parts of the world for, you know, for our communities and how do we develop really an anthropology around better eating in an affordable way so there's better food access to folks. So that was, that happened when I was really young and it evolved over time. So the other angle to all of this is this bent towards entrepreneurism. So what led you then, you know, with a focus on food, what led you to becoming an entrepreneur? So it's interesting. I, I still consider myself to be a cook by trade. And, <laughs> and, um, and I think for me, what I, I feel like it de- depends on how you define the responsibility of a cook or a chef. And I have been saying for some time now that you can go to culinary school, you can learn technique, you can learn how to make, you know, dishes or copy dishes from different parts of the world. But really what makes a dish is the quality of ingredients. We used to have a Mm -hmm. a saying at Blue Apron that an incredible dish is composed of incredible ingredients. And, um, you know, if you're cooking, and you don't have access to those ingredients, it's your responsibility as a cook to go out and procure them or create them in some kind of way in food system change and management. And you can do that through supporting farmers. You can do that through um, saying, hey, to your, your local growers, I'd really like to buy these products. I'll put them on my menu for a season. Um, if you're working in a food manufacturing setting or a grocery setting, creating shelf space, space for items and working with folks to improve their production. So I, I think for me, it's the role and responsibility, not just as a cook to create great food, but to create food systems that we want to live in and exist in because cooks are really the thought leaders of how people end up eating and spending their time and cooking at home. And building that anthropology for better food creates more than just making a dish or picking up a ticket in the kitchen. It creates food system change management. And that's something that I think that we need to start teaching at culinary schools and as a professional community, um, sharing with one another a little bit more fluently. I love that. There's so much that goes around sitting at the dinner table and having a meal, you know, and to have really good ingredients and then good conversation um, and building relationships. There's, I mean, there's so much that goes on in all of that um, for sure. You mentioned Blue Apron. So obviously we cannot have this conversation today without talking about, you know, how you founded Blue Apron. Talk, give us the storyline because to me, it's fascinating. Well, you know, cooking at home is, is, I I think of it as like a time machine. So when you think back at um, all of your greatest times in your life, many of those times evolve around family and friends at the dinner table. Yep. And with Blue Apron, you know, I was trying to think, how do we recapture that in in America? Because 10 years ago, if we can just think back to a decade ago, um, I know it's hard. Yeah, there's a vacuum for about two two years. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Go back to 10 years ago and think, um, you know, Food Network, 
Iron Chef, Alton right. Brown, like all of the, you know, all of these Emerald, like all of these folks who are now a lot of them retired or not on TV anymore. There was more information being consumed about food and cooking than in the history of America and less people cooking than in the history of America. Oh, that's very true. Yes. So it, it, it was just this incredible opportunity from just a gap in folks who were interested in food and people who knew how to cook. So Blue Apron was built on the catalyst of the idea that folks want to cook. They just need a little bit of help. So how do we create the, the assistance for them? You know, put, put some ingredients in a box, um, you know, uh, create a recipe card, portion everything out, make it simple, and focus on some of the basic techniques that I, I think are critical. One of the things that you'll always see in a Blue Apron recipe is there's, there's a French word called mise en place. So that means things in place. You do your mise en place and you do all your cutting and all your stuff um, first, and then you go into executing on the recipe. And if anybody's ever tried to do a Thanksgiving dinner and has you know, their green beans working and their potatoes and their turkey in the oven and everything, and you try to bring it all together, it can be a little yeah. bit of a tornado in the kitchen. So um, the philosophy of Blue Apron is let's simplify that. Let's create a format that's easy to teach in and, and then bring that to the customers. And that happened. Um, because I had a friend at Harvard Business School named Matt Salzberg. I was friends actually with his wife, who's at the time, her name was Lily Hayes Kaufman. And they ended up getting married um, years later. We were introduced and became New York culinary friends. And there was a, a friend of Matt's named Elia Pappas, or CTO, who uh, was on the team. And, and Matt and Elia had been talking about different startup ventures. And I was Matt's culinary friend. I was in the food business and consulting and, and working in uh, different food enterprises. And we got our heads together and um, cooked up the plan. And the, it's actually funny, the initial name that uh, we had been working under was part and parsley as a pun to oh. <laughs> right. name for a food company. So we said, <laughs> well, you know, um, I had always worn a blue apron in the kitchen, you know, as a oh. cook. And um, a blue apron was a symbol of a lot of cooks who had worked in Europe because the executive chef in a lot of European kitchens wore black and white striped aprons. And as an homage to being a student of those chefs, many chefs who came back like Thomas Keller and Charlie Trotter and myself and others continue to wear their call me apron, their blue apron, which is the lower level. And right. that is a symbol of lifelong learning and respect to those chefs. It's sort of a US thing. So um, I said, well, let's, let's create a symbol for the paradigm of lifelong learning in the kitchen. And let's turn this into something where we manage our supply chain. We manage the ingredients, the inputs, because we had an opportunity to do co-packing and all kinds of stuff in the early days. But we said, no, we're gonna do it the hard way. We're gonna you know, do this the right way by managing our supply chain. And, and we'll, we changed the name to Blue Apron. So that, that's what kicked it off. And then the first week we delivered something like, you know, I think it was less than 40 boxes. And then the next week, um, it was like friend, it was friends and family. It was friends, right. friends who we mostly knew. And then the third weekend to our deliveries, there were like half of the people we'd never heard of. So that's, that's kind of when we knew, um, that you had was- something. <laughs> and I think for any entrepreneur, that's really interesting when you start seeing customers, whether it's e-commerce or bricks and mortar, or whatever you're doing, you know, the magic of having customers first arrive to your store and buy th- something from, from you is so rewarding after putting in a lot of work.
Right, of course, that it, that is um, people who are curious and interested. So give me just a second to, um, and just to ask a question regarding the supply chain. How challenging was it for you to go that harder approach from a supply chain perspective? We, we might have to do another interview on that. <laughs> it was very challenging. I figured. Uh, so again, like uh, going back 10 years, um, what everybody has, uh, you know, I think made synonymous with meal kits, which are the little one ounce bottles of soy sauce or sesame mm -hmm. oil, the little packets of spices, uh, a package of meat in a, just a simple roll stock pack, um, you know, a, a, a sprig of herbs in, a, you know, a small little bag. None of that stuff existed. Mm -hmm. So to try to, you know, for example, the soy sauce in the one ounce bottle, to try to package things either in deli containers, which doesn't work, they leak everywhere, or to get a, a, a bottle that doesn't look like a shampoo bottle in a hotel. Right. <laughs> challenging. So we had to go out and we had to create molds for all of these items. Um, one of our biggest challenges is we had to learn how to ship eggs. And this was like an early a conversation, like heated debate. That sounds like, you know, like a seventh grade science project or it, it, fifth grade yeah, science project. The the roof. So we literally <laughs> were like on the roof with boxes, dropping them to see if the egg inside the box would break. And we, we oh ended up gosh. developing this sort of uh, container that would hold one or two eggs. So it was challenging. We had to invent all of that stuff. And now it's a, it's a, you know, a billion dollar industry, multi-billion dollar industry, but um, that came from really just, you know, innovation over time. I, well, I love it. Obviously, that is your bent <laughs> um, from an innovation perspective. But that leads to the next question and the fact that you're doing this interview from Decatur, Arkansas, yep. not from New York City. Um, and you're on a farm in Decatur building a regenerative food and genetics business. That is quite a shift. Can you talk to us about what led to, to this business, to this change and what you were doing? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that we were looking for at Blue Apron was better quality meat. And I, we had acquired a company from a good friend of mine, Bill Nyman, BN Ranch. Some folks have heard of his first company, uh, Nyman Ranch. And um, we partnered up. I've known him for over 20 years and uh, we're looking into better supply chains. So we um, started uh, buying grass-fed cattle, both in the U.S. and in uh, the Southern Hemisphere, depending on seasonality. So in the summer, we supported domestic systems for grass-fed and processed cattle. In our winter, instead of um, you know harvesting cattle when they're more lean off of silage, we would go down to the southern hemisphere and, and harvest cattle from Australia, New Zealand. And um, we had an interest in, in bringing a better chicken to our customers, and we knew through our e-commerce feedback that a lot of folks were interested in pasture-raised chickens, chickens that were going outside, different breeds, et cetera. So I came down to Arkansas on a mission and talked to all the poultry companies down here. And um, yeah, and, we know a little bit about poultry, don't we? Yeah, sure. <laughs> and, and actually, you know, one of the folks I talked to was, was Donnie Smith. And I will yeah. tell you, he is, was one of the most gregarious, nicest, kindest, like a true leader of leaders. And yeah. Um, he, it was very inspiring when I, when I spoke with him, very inclined to want to do a project and so on and so forth. Um, but, but had really good experiences with the folks down here and met a lot of incredible folks. And one of the, the people that I was, um, recommended to be introduced to was Lloyd Peterson's grandson, Blake Evans, mm -hmm. who, um, had, um, 
sold off the Peterson property after his grandfather passed away and was managing a genetics, an up-and-coming genetics program with one of his former geneticists, a gentleman by the name of Richard Udale. So they had spent about seven years putting together a new breeding line based on alternative genetics to the Cornish cross lines. And that was really what we were looking for at, um, at Blue Apron. And just in so in, in layman's terms, what does that mean? So it, basically, here's, here's kind of the situation. And talking with, with Donnie, what I learned, because obviously Tyson is affiliated with Cobb, right. is, that, is that to build a new genetics line, it takes you know tens of millions to hundreds of millions of dollars, and it takes five to 10 to 15 years. So when I met Blake, he had already done a lot of that and um, it was complicated. And there's a lot to, to your point, you have to kind of like boil it down, a little, <laughs> make, it, make it easy, easy to, to, to digest. And, and he had done a lot of the incredible work because his grandfather was an expert geneticist and Lloyd Peterson in the height of those, the days of the property that we now we own and manage um, was supplying about 65% of the male chickens for, um, for breeding purposes globally. So there was this incredible facility here in Decatur, um, which is a, a research campus, really. And it's something, you know, sort of like the folks in the area understand what Cobb is. And it's right. sort of similar to what, what Cobb, you know, Cobb is and what we do. And he had all of the pedigree housing and breeder housing. And, and there's a wow, lot of- Wow, what a hidden gem. I mean, it, truly. <laughs> total hidden gem. And there's nothing else like it. So um, what's happened over the last really 50 years in the US is that genetics companies have gone from- at one point, there were about 130 global genetics companies, and now there are really two, Cobb and Avigen. And for our purposes, I said, well, what we really want to do is cultivate this incredible bird that Blake was working on. And how do we bring that to folks who want to eat something different? And it's no different than somebody who says, okay, I've got Hereford cattle, I've got mm -hmm. Angus cattle, I've got Charlie's, I've got, you know, whatever. And you just buy by breed. And in the poultry world, um, folks used to think about buying by breed and in a lot of places in Europe, they still do, but the U S sort of has a different system where it's more brand-based and that's where I saw an opportunity. And, um, we, we sort of were able to work out a deal and I was able to partner with Blake and acquire the company and, and turn the breeding program into something where we can actually grow chickens and sell it. Well, for anybody who has not tried one of the chickens, they are delicious because um, I have bought plenty since um, okay. I started following you and my family loves them, a family of with a husband and three boys. So there's never a loss for somebody with an appetite for good food. Okay. So you mentioned Donnie Smith and he is one of my favorites as well. So yeah. if you've met Donnie, you know what an incredible servant leader that he is. And he is inspiring with every action and every word. I'm wondering um, what other big surprise that you've had about Northwest Arkansas, because I think people certainly uh, have a sort of a, maybe a perception of what Arkansas is like or the Heartland in general. And you know, as Heartland Forward, one of our um, areas of focus is really trying to change the narrative. And we love it when people come and experience it and go, wow, that's not exactly what I thought it might be. So what might be one of your biggest surprises about Northwest Arkansas? Well, I'm from, I'm from Texas. So I'm a sort of like, you know, experienced in the heartland to some right? if, with my roots. And I grew up in Northern Illinois in a rural area. I, I live in New York half the time now and here half the time. Um, but I think, you know, we do a lot of recruiting down here, like a lot of folks. And I think there is, you know, this sort of perception to, um, 
you know, Northwest Arkansas and maybe what it was 50 years ago versus what mm -hmm. it is today and the incredible bike trails and uh, Thaden Field and um, the momentary and, and um, <clears throat> crystal bridges and just all of the cool stuff that's going on. And I, I think what's been compelling is not just I think some of the incredible philanthropy that's happened in the area, which is really remarkable. Yeah, it is amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's very special, but also how that's fueling some of the organic growth that mm -hmm. makes Northwest Arkansas um, interesting for other other reasons. Like, for example, um, you know, as a cook this weekend, I'll, I'll just tell everybody I I uh, <laughs> on the weekend. I, I, I went to, uh, I just Googled, you know, different like Asian grocery stores and I went to an Asian grocery store and I, I was missing New York a little bit and wanted to make a soy sauce chicken. And I found all these incredible ingredients, <gasps> all of these vegetables. And if I, I think there are hidden gems in adventures because of the diversity of the community and, and what, you know, businesses like Walmart and Tyson and JB Hunt have brought in um, that folks don't really even know who live here. And right. I think I think it's really cool to do those exploratory things. And of course, just being in the Ozarks is, is incredible. And, um, you know, getting out to go, you know, like rock climbing or boating in the summertime, there's just so much access to, to nature and diversity here, natural diversity, which is right. fascinating. And, and I think there, um, for me, it's, it's exciting. And I think what the, the big surprise that I found is there is access to the kind of ingredients farming and cooking that I didn't think was here that is here it's still kind of a secret but right. I think that we that's like something that I think we as a community can support more because that's the cool stuff to me like you know when I go to a new city exploring kind of some of the more interesting uh you know places that are out there off the beaten path so I I, I think that's exciting and and just the amount of talent that's here um in terms of people who are trying to, uh, you know, build the next Austin, you know, yep. in, in Northwest Arkansas. I think that's really cool. Yeah. I love hearing that. Okay. So let's go back to Cook's Venture. And what would you want people to know about your vision for this company? Because I know your vision is probably far more aspirational than what you're doing right now at this exact moment. You've probably got um, big ideas for it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that, um, you know, farmers in our country uh, over the course of the last, we'll call it, you know, post-World War II, you know, some people call it the green, the green wave in agriculture, have been um, year over year over year. And by farmers, I mean crop farmers, you know, corn, soy, et cetera, also animal agriculture. There's a depreciating value to what farmers can make in terms of lifestyle and earning a living. And one of my goals, and predominantly because of, you know, how the government and how we mandate corn and soy and, and subsidize it in certain right. ways, right? So input costs are increasing for everybody, you know, in the Midwest, in the South, here in uh, Arkansas and Missouri, um, in Kansas, you know, I think that we're seeing increased costs of agriculture, but depreciating prices. Now, prices have gone up a little bit this year, but input costs have gone up too. So when I think about chicken, chicken is a, is a catalyst for, you know, our use of land in our country. Mm -hmm. And when we're in economies where we're buying 
Indian soybean meal and Brazilian soybean meal, and we're burning down a, a rainforest to uh, to grow more soybeans when we have the capacity to do that here in the U.S. And we're we're making you know we're growing corn to make ethanol that's subsidized with tax dollars. I tend to be lean in terms of thinking economically. Like I don't think we need to create more ethanol jobs if it's ultimately a money losing business for the government and for taxpayers. Right. We create better jobs for farmers where there's more input security so that farmers can grow crops and have economically viable businesses in the heartland, you know, in the places where I grew up. When I grew up in, in Northern Illinois, I'll tell you, we were right on the Wisconsin border in the middle of nowhere. And there was corn, 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 corn monocultural every single year. And I remember the smell of the fertilizer as a kid. I right. Remember, <laughs> I remember the, the inputs. I remember the spray, all that stuff. And all that stuff costs a lot of money for farmers. So like if you, if you put ethos aside for a second about, you know, just spraying poison on land, you know, which affects a lot of families in, in our area too. Like how do we get to natural systems where we can reduce inputs and increase farmer profitability? And then people get paid on a cost plus basis for the food that we grow. You know, the idea that we need to, you know, win agricultural trade globally through mass producing and subsidizing ag is a very antiquated 1950s idea where we should be creating systems where um, we're feeding animals better quality food with less, less stuff in it, where chemical companies are making less money and farmers are making more money. And that's the goal really of Cook's Venture on a high level is reducing the inputs to build back farming in America, to build back soil that doesn't require so many inputs, you know, in, in the form of petrochemical inputs and chemical inputs and herbicides and have crop rotations based on chickens that can eat more stuff. So really what, what our selection criteria is for, for our, our poultry is we have an interesting breed of bird and it has a natural ability to eat more things and support farmers in a healthier way. That, that's kind of like the story in a nutshell. And that's the mission behind, you know, working as a cook, working at Blue Apron, working, you know, as a, a, in a chicken genetics company and a poultry company. It's trying to build healthier food systems for Americans who grow food and give back. Right. Right. Who are living the American dream because yeah. most of them are entrepreneurs, right? <laughs> as farmers in particular. That's right. And, and I just want to go back to like, you know, kind of what I said earlier, you know, working as a cook for, for 10 bucks an hour and not being able to afford to eat in the restaurant I was cooking in. It's really important for me personally to create food that is affordable to normal people. And it's never going to be as cheap as some of the food out there, but it's not subsidized. It's, it's paying people living wages who deserve living wages because they're working really hard for their, for their money and they're, they're managing land and they're managing our country in a way. And we want to build sustainability, not just of land, but sustainability of income. And um, I think hardworking people deserve to make a living wage. That's my right. Point. If my you've point. ever, if you've ever done it before, you know that they are hardworking. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, they're the first ones up and the last ones to go to bed and sometimes not going to bed, depending upon what's happening on the land. So Thank you. Okay. One piece of advice that you would give to someone who wants to become an entrepreneur, whatever their bent might be, whatever their focus might be. Somebody told me this a long time ago, um, before I was an entrepreneur and it, it was do what you know. And people ask that a lot, a lot, but you know, if you know something, if you're, you know, sort of like a hobbyist or an expert, or there's some, there's something that all of us do that they're interested in. 
I would say follow that passion and entrepreneurship tends to lead people as opposed to people trying to figure out an idea of how should I become an entrepreneur? I think, you know, in, in my life, these, these sort of opportunities have presented themselves because I'm interested in food. And I, you know, I, I would tell people to listen to their heart, look for the gaps. And, um, you know, in our case, I fully support the work that, that other companies are doing in America who are creating great jobs. We just want to create alternatives to those jobs and, and give people more options. And I think that if there are alternatives that are available in, in whatever, you know, folks are out there doing in their lives, create those alternatives to meet the demand of people. There's a lot of different kinds of people out there and they all want different things. So provide those things and, and that will create a successful business. Right. It makes the world go round. Okay. I have some machine gun questioning. These are sure. fun questions. Okay. What is your perfect day? Oh gosh. There are so many perfect days I would love to have we, that we haven't been able to have over the last couple of years, but I, I love being out on the water um, and, you know, having a great meal, friends and family, um, you know, just, just enjoying life and taking in those moments. Last book you read or podcast you listened to? Wow. Um, the last book I read was a poultry science book. Actually. <laughs> I'm like, oh, like it sounds rivet, riveting, Matt. <laughs> riveting. Well, I've, I've been trying to go back and, and, and learn more about what people were doing in, in the 30s right. and 40s and, you know, in the, the sort of that, the time of the poultry pioneers. Um, right. I'm, I'm rereading Mo Moby Dick, though, actually, too. I don't know. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. wow. Okay. Favorite meal. So I, this has got to be tough, but what is it? Yeah. God. Um, I, having worked in Italy, am a huge fan of Italian cooking and, um, anybody who can do handmade pasta and make a really incredible seasonal pasta dish. I'm also a big nut for white truffles, real, real white truffles, not the oil. <laughs> I know that's a little bit elitist, but it's it's truthfully like the most like divine thing. That it sounds decadent. It's decadent, but it's amazing. But yeah, definitely homemade pasta. Okay, last question. Go to music when you're in the kitchen cooking. Um, God, I mean that could be anything. Cooks like to to mix it up in the kitchen, so. Um, you know, you know, like I, a surgeon when he's like working on you, he's got his go-to music. Yeah, what it, is your... It, it's usually rock and roll, you know? Mm -hmm. you know it, it could be anything from Led Zeppelin to something more chill, like 10cc to, I mean, bring back old stuff, like, you know, <laughs> um, but yeah, like, you know, Beatles, Stones, you know, all, all of that. And Oh, well, I love it. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time. It took a while for us to get you on the schedule and I have been anticipating today since Elizabeth finally helped us make it happen. So we appreciate you taking some time to visit with us on our podcast and sharing your story. And we wish you the very best with Cook's Venture. Thank you so much, Blake. Really an honor to be here. It's an honor to be here in Northwest Arkansas. Um, the community and the support that we get here is phenomenal. And we're excited to work with everyone to build a better food system, both locally and for all of our folks across the country. 